You could take a healthy oil like olive oil and put it in a pan and cook it at high heat and you see all those bubbles. And apparently, even though what you're reading on the label says one gram out of 14 in this extra virgin olive oil is actually saturated, when you cook it at high heat, it becomes more saturated. You know, the fried foods may look good and that crispiness and the tastiness, but from a heart health point of view, you're basically loading yourself with a lot of saturated fat. And the frying process, particularly deep frying, just saturates whatever it is with more fat than there would be otherwise. Hi, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen or a view or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. It comes as no surprise that Americans have a deep love affair with fried food. As a matter of fact, you can call it an obsession. Talking about fried chicken and fried fish and French fries and potato chips and burgers, even fried pickles. By and large, as a society, we put these fat bombs up on a pedestal and pretty much worship them. I mean, it is crazy to think that fried Twinkies and fried Oreos have achieved God status in some circles. But that is the case, and millions of us are gathering at the Church of Our Lady of Sinful Eating seven days a week. And the thing is, nobody is really questioning whether or not fried food is healthy. We've known that for years and years and years, that it's not. And yet, we still get down on our knees every Thanksgiving and thank the good Lord above for fried turkey. So we know that it's not healthy, but we choose to ignore it. Why? Because admitting it wouldn't be a whole lot of fun, would it? It would be taking the wind out of the unhealthy sails, all of the air out of the balloon. But you know what? Today, at the risk of being a big bucket of cold water, we're going to push pause on the fun. We're going to stop that coronary carnival, and we're actually going to give it some thought. And the question we are going to focus on is what does fried food really do to our heart? And to answer that question, I reached out to one of the top cardiologists in the land, Dr. Kim Williams. When we spoke, he had just finished reviewing a new study all about fried food, one that looked at hundreds of thousands of people and what happened to them as a result of eating an abundance of it. I mean, just bunches and bunches of greasy fried food every day over the years. And what the connection showed between fried food and health could not possibly be any clearer. So we are going to be getting into those results and what fried food does to your heart. And he also has some great advice for those who live in food deserts, where fast food restaurants and mini marts outnumber grocery stores 
50 to 1. How can you still eat heart healthy in those circumstances? And of course, you can't have a cardiologist on the show without asking what their top foods are. So the way that I see it, if it's in Dr. Williams' kitchen, then you know it's got to be good for your heart, right? <laughs> so let's dive in right now and look at the heart and what fried food really does to it. Talking about heart health here on the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee, and I can think of no better person to have this discussion with than a friend of the show. He is the Chief of Cardiology at Rush University and the former president of the American College of Cardiology. Knows quite a bit about this stuff. Please welcome Dr. Kim Williams to the Exam Room. Dr. Williams, thanks so much for being here. And thank you for having me, Jack. I want to start with a very interesting new study that was put out looking at the effect that fried food has on the heart. Um, I think that they looked at something like 500,000 people to uh, get to this study. But before we talk about those results, if I were a patient and you and I were talking about it and I knew nothing about heart health and I said, well, doc, can you paint a picture for me of what happens to my heart when I eat that greasy fried food? How would you paint that picture? Well, it's been interesting that uh, folks have recognized to varying degrees the bad side of eating fat, okay? The people uh, have quoted very famously, the fat you eat is the fat you wear. But there really have been differential effects. That is, uh, you, if you take uh, fats and divide them into four groups, saturated is the one that everyone is worried about. And you'll actually see some articles. One came out a couple, you know, just last week saying that eh, saturated fat isn't so bad. And you look, there's a lot of relationships with industry of people very interested in making sure that people don't stop eating saturated fat which is in our uh, American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines to reduce it as much as possible. Um, you have some people within the saturated fat community uh, thinking, well, if it's plant-based, then maybe it's okay. And there is, is no question that the shorter chain saturated fat is a little bit better than the long chains that you get from animals. So, you know, a coconut oil is not gonna be bad as, uh, you know, as a fagua or something like that. However, um, the discussion goes further that if you're talking about trans fats, uh, which are chemically just a little bit different, these are actually very serious. And the, the U.S. government had the insight uh, last year to remove them from legality in serving in public places. Um, so we can just put that one to the side. Saturated fat is the one where people are arguing a lot about, and to some degree, polyunsaturated and monounsaturated which are basically vegetable sources, those actually uh, can actually improve someone's cholesterol and they are associated with less mortality. Now, whether or not they are absolutely improving outcomes or there is a relative benefit. That is, if I stop eating cyanide and start eating arsenic, is it gonna improve my outcome? Of course it will, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily good for me. And so you, you will have a really hard time getting data that'll isolate each particular one. Uh, but what we do know is that, uh, at least in large populations, 
that the polyunsaturated fat is probably the best in terms of cholesterol, monounsaturated next, then saturated fat is going to be the worst. Now, the, the thing that's relevant to this uh, fried food study is that you could take a healthy oil like olive oil and put it in a pan and cook it at high heat and you see all those bubbles. And apparently that actually is the, part of the process of that even though what you're reading on the label says, oh, one, one gram out of 14 in this extra virgin olive oil is actually saturated. When you cook it at high heat, it becomes more saturated. And so with that as the backdrop, you know, the fried foods may look good and that crispiness and the tastiness and uh, is very attractive uh, from a culinary point of view. But from a heart health point of view, you're basically loading yourself with a lot of saturated fat. And the frying process, particularly deep frying, just saturates whatever it is uh, with more fat than, it, than it, there would be otherwise. Um, and so it's not surprising that the article actually does show a substantial increase in cardiovascular events, in coronary disease, that's really heart attack events, uh, and heart failure. And these increases really are things that I, I tell people that, you know, these are choices that you can make. You can choose to be healthy. You can choose to impoverish our cardiology division by not having events um, just by the choices that you make at the dinner table. Yeah. And let's look at some numbers from that study. Again, I mean, this was a meta-analysis. Okay. So I believe that the researchers in this case looked at 17 studies totaling 500,000 people, give or take a few. Um, but what they found was as far as a MCE, a major cardiovascular event, uh, those who ate the most fried food, uh, that risk went up by 28%. For coronary heart disease, 22%. Here's a big one, heart failure. 37%. You hear those numbers, you hear fried food tied with them. As a cardiologist, can't come as any surprise. It really isn't a surprise. And, you know, the, there are social issues that, are, that uh, revolve around this as well. That is, the fried food is more so in the, our African-American community than somewhat, some of the other communities. Uh, but also South Asians do a lot of frying of, of foods. Uh, and these are two sets of people, uh, people of color, who end up having more coronary heart disease and more heart disease in general uh, than, the, than the rest of the U.S. population. And so uh, it really is tied to diet. We can make better choices. Um, but one of the other big problems isn't just cultural. It's uh, sort of socioeconomic. That is, if you're in a poorer neighborhood, you're much more likely to have fast food restaurants and the fast food restaurants become a major source of fried food. And I know it, I know it, under, it helps them with marketing short term because you, know, the, you don't get the long-term customers when they're you know, in and out of the hospital as well. But they, it, there is a lot of uh, business to be made um, you know, selling these foods to the people who are least going to be able to, to manage um, biochemically and economically uh, the disease burden that actually happens when you eat these foods. And I think that over the last year, given the all of the events that have transpired, they extend well beyond just the health community. A lot of people are starting to realize some of these systemic issues that have been plaguing society. And I will tell you this, uh, here at the Physicians Committee, back on the health front, we recently published a study that flat out showed that health is essentially colorblind. So 
you, uh, our own doctors, uh, Barnard and, and Hannah Kaliova, they published a study and here's what they found. Uh, plant-based diets overwhelmingly improve heart health. Uh, regardless of race, they found black participants were able to improve insulin resistance by 76% by adopting a plant-based diet, whites, 74%. But then you, you look at fried foods, you think cholesterol, well, check this out. Black participants lower LDL cholesterol by 14% compared to whites who lowered it by 20%. So all things created equal here. If you level that playing field, everybody gets the same kind of benefit here. And it really does force us to look outside of everything and say, well, yeah, no, this is not genetics like we thought. Agree completely. And, you know, this, it's interesting that everyone uh, looks at black and white and, you know, that really is more of a social construct. Uh, if you take all the races uh, and look at now that we have, you know, these major vendors who are doing genomics and we've had the, the whole genome project, we know for a fact that even though we may have different skin color and hair texture and eye color and the like, you know, humans are basically 99.9% .9 the same. And I know there are a lot of people, on, uh, you know, that don't want to hear that, but it's, it's the genetic truth. And so it's not surprising that they didn't find statistical significant differences. Now, the interesting thing about it is that some of these numbers, I, certainly not a criticism of the article, is so glad that they've, that they've done it. Uh, but you have to wonder as the statistician slash inner city healthcare guy, um, wouldn't they have reached statistical significance with some of these relationships, such as the uh, insulin resistance? It was the improvement was actually twice as good in the black population as it was in the white. Uh, it didn't reach statistical significance, and that that's, that's what you know, the class of statisticians call a type two statistical error. That is, if the study was larger, oh yeah, that doubling or the, uh, cutting it in uh, or twice as much improvement would have reached statistical significance. Uh, what is it really saying? You know, insulin resistance is, has to do with being overweight, particularly central obesity. And that is a problem that we have more in black than blacks than whites. So if you study a population, try to improve their diet, you're actually going to get bigger gains in the black population than you are in the white population because we have a farther distance to travel. Uh, so so I really applaud them from do, for doing the study and showing that everyone improves and the worse you are, the probably the more you're going to improve. I think that the question then becomes this, if somebody is struggling with their weight and they are living in a food desert and they are not affluent at all, you know, they're, they're the average American living in the inner city who's struggling to get by, how then can they eat healthfully if there is a McDonald's on every corner, but a grocery store, you have to go five, 10 miles just to get one? It's a real issue. Um, it's a bit less of an issue than it, than it was in previous years. Some of the major vendors, you know, won't um, uh, say them by name, but everyone knows who they are. They, they have made a specific, um, you know, program of going into the inner cities and uh, setting up stores. And so, you know, in, in Chicago, if you go to the, you know, it, which is one of the, it was pointed out by in, NYU, exactly what you're talking about, um, that the life expectancy has one of the largest ones in Chicago. Um, the largest one in the country is actually in Chicago. That is the Inglewood uh, neighborhood that I grew up in uh, has a life expectancy of uh, 60 years. And if you go north to the near north side, Streeterville, the life expectancy is, is 90. 
And mm. so that 30.1 year difference is the largest in the United States. Well, it turns out that there is, you know, a major food vendor in Inglewood now. They've recognized it and they're trying to do something about it. So I just want to, you know, applaud everyone who's thinking this through. And uh, yes, once you have the supply, then you have to do the education. And that's where, you know, critical organizations uh, like PCRM, like, you know, Rush going out into the community, trying to do education about, you know, what is good food? Because, you know, even these wonderful vendors, they're not going to force you, even if you put food labels on it, you know, the red, yellow and green that people are talking about. And they've actually tried them in some research projects uh, that the green stuff is stuff you really should be eating. Uh, yellow, you should eat some every now and then, and the red, you really shouldn't be eating. You know, there are probably not too many stores that like stocking things, having them sell briskly, and then put a red food label on it saying, don't do this. So um, it's we have to actually sort of uh, use more of our educational system, schools, churches, community groups, uh, to try to get the word out. And uh, I'm glad you guys are doing what you're doing, and, and hopefully uh, other community groups will, will bring up, uh, take up the same mantle. Well, let me ask you about that red, uh, yellow, green system that you were just describing there. Very simple. I would imagine that that's a concept that virtually everyone can gravitate toward because there's not a whole lot of room for, you know, ambiguity there. You know, it's either green, it's either yellow or it's red. And you're talking about three basically universal colors that everybody knows what they stand for. So I would think that that would go a long way if if you can get past the resistance of big business. That's right. And, and it's very hard. And, and we have, you know, so I think the largest trial of this was actually in, in Australia. It was highly su successful in changing people's food patterns. Uh, the problem with it, uh, as you point out, is big business has really a conflict of interest there. Sure, they want their customers to stay alive, but they're giving them uh, food that, you know, I mean, you could say uh, that it's all greed or it's all, you know, avarice or malice. I'm not sure it's any of the above because the food uh, giants are eating those foods themselves uh, in many cases. And so uh, let's try to be clear on the science, which is very difficult because the science really does get um, sort of watered down by industry influences, including our dietary guidelines for Americans, which came out, you know, every every five years they, they come out with an initial report that sounds really pretty good. And then the next thing you know, it's watered down or it's changed in some ways so that, you know, red meat is okay. And, um, you know, sugar sweetened beverages are no longer off the table like they were in the original document. Um, so we really struggle um, as a society. I'm hoping, um, you know, with the changes that have occurred uh, politically in the last you know few days, um, that we can get back to the sort of thing that the, um, that uh, the former first lady was trying to do fruits and vegetables and exercise and try to get America to be healthy again, because it's critical to our um, to our nation's health, but also to our finances, particularly after COVID. I would think that it's everyone's, you know, financial responsibility. It's everyone's patriotic duty to try to be healthy, to pick up a healthy lifestyle. Don't sit around all the time. Don't eat the comfort foods that are going to ruin your health. And then expect that our Medicare system, which was going to go broke in 2026, 20, and now it's scheduled to go broke in 2024 20, uh, because of COVID. Uh, it's our responsibility as individuals to help that out. I mean, um, my goal is to, 
you know, never use the Medicare system that I've been paying into for decades. Um, just by doing everything that I can within my control uh, to uh, optimize my health. Well, you mentioned COVID a couple of times and that, you know, reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend recently. And he said, well, look, Chuck, take COVID out of the equation. The single biggest threat then to public health generally speaking, then would become that high fat fried food filled standard American diet. Would you agree with that assessment? It's it's very true. And, and there's really good data uh, that with even within the American diet, if you look at the regards trial, University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, they've been dissecting uh, diets into five different categories. And the one with the most fried food, the so-called Southern diet, um, that's the one that has the highest level of strokes, kidney disease, death, and heart attacks. And so, you know, the data is very, very clear and it's published in peer-reviewed journals and uh, widely accepted as authoritarian in the, in the nutrition community, but it doesn't even translate to our cardiology or internal medicine um, uh, community sometimes. Uh, leading, I always say the leading cause of death of doctors, including cardiologists, is still heart disease, and it's driven by our lifestyle. I know we're all under stress. The stress only increased during COVID. And, uh, you know, the COVID-15 uh, that people talk about with their weight, I'm seeing patients with a COVID-50 and, and physicians who are, you know, just not exercising like they were before because they're covering the COVID unit and they're stressed. Um, so we really have to focus on our education system and get the word out that you know we need to, to start with the basics of nutrition in order to solve these problems of health that we have. You know, the one more comment on that is that uh, you know, I've seen for that graph over and over again, and anyone can look this up, the life expectancy versus the per capita expenditure on health. And the United States of America is one of the worst in the world. That is our life, what we're, the amount of money that we're spending and you compare that to the outcome. Uh, that is a ratio that is worse than any other developed country and many of the undeveloped countries. It's something that we all have to take individual responsibility for. Mm. I want to pivot right now and talk about a diet that I think a lot of people are going to be turning to if they've put on that COVID-15 or even COVID-50, as you said, and that is the keto diet. And a colleague, a, a fellow cardiologist by the name of Dr. Robert Osfeld recently gave really kind of a, a scathing remark about the keto diet, uh, said this, and I quote to Plant Based News, he said, as a cardiologist, I believe the keto diet is a mistake. The keto diet is based on misinformation. Information. And then he goes on to say there is no long living population that is consistently in a state of ketosis. And then he points out all the things that are omitted from the keto diet that we know go to improve our health. So what are your thoughts as a cardiologist on the keto diet? So obviously, I'm conflicted. I'm chief of cardiology at a major university. And, you know, we have a budget and, you know, we need to do as many procedures as we can in order to, in order to continue to do them at a high quality, right? And so it's not just about the money, it's about delivering the best care. Well, the keto diet helps us um, because very seriously, uh, I get referrals from all over. Um, my very last referral was yet another relatively young lady at 45 years old uh, who a few months ago had a heart attack. She'd been doing the keto diet for 18 months. She lost a lot of weight and then she had a heart attack. 
And this is so, you know, so uh, it's great that Dr. Osfeld is, is taking this up because it's against his own self-interest, in, self meaning that cardiology does really well with the keto diet. Now, what is that all about? What is, what is the effect of it? I would refer you to multiple trials that have been shown. And what I, what I tell people, there's, a, there's enough literature on this that I ask them just go to your phone, go to your search engine and put in two words or three words, keto diet mortality. And you're gonna see a study from Greece that says it increases mortality by 22%. And then you'll see one from, um, uh, from the United States that says that it's 18% increase in mortality, but increasing even more the more ketotic you are. Low carb um, is not as bad as you know when you get to a real keto diet, uh, but low carb does increase mortality. And so there are multiple trials, probably the, one of the more convincing one as a cardiologist was seeing people who have had a heart attack before. And uh, when they do this, it's a 53% increase in mortality. And so please, before anyone goes on this to, to lose weight in order to avoid the ultimate weight loss, okay, um, please just look at those studies. Uh, they're out there. Uh, and the other thing that's happened is we now have a mechanism. And it was great that Dr. Oswald was talking about what's missing, but the, there's a couple of things that everyone should know uh, from recent literature. One is um, there was a, all of this data was compiled by the National Lipid Association. You know, they just want the cholesterol to go down and, and stop, people to stop dying of heart disease. And so they actually evaluated very carefully the biochemical effects of a keto diet and showed unequivocally that yes, the blood pressure can go down, maybe, the blood sugar goes down, absolutely. Your insulin levels drop because you're losing weight, no question. And those sound like really good things. Unfortunately, they're counterbalanced by two things, an increase in inflammation in the bloodstream, which I'll come back to, and an increase in LDL cholesterol, which for, forms plaque. And so this kind of diet uh, puts you at, at risk for cardiovascular death, heart attack, stroke, and even heart failure. And so I would say with a, all due respect to the people who are uh, pushing these diets, hopefully there, there's no commercial interest, um, uh, but if you look hard at the science, you won't do it. Now, uh, I've got to talk about one of that inflammation a little bit more than I did a few days ago, uh, because uh, I think last Saturday there was a publication that came out that, uh, that talked specifically about COVID and COVID mortality, COVID severe illness. And it turns out the people who have the worst illness, and this really goes along with what I've been saying and observing the whole time, people who are plant-based and healthy, doing a plant-based diet, they get COVID, but they don't get sick. I don't, I'm sure someone can, and I, I think we talked about this at the last show, I'm still waiting for somebody, I'm sure somebody who's plant-based or vegan got hospitalized with COVID or died, I just haven't heard about them. And I would, you know, I, I heard of one person who was still very overweight. Uh, so they hadn't been doing it long enough or whatever. But um, they, it turns out that if you look at the Cleveland Clinic's data on uh, trimethylamine in oxide, uh, TMAO, which is really uh, bound up in the gut, that is, it's about the microbiome. And when you eat animal products, you end up with a microbiome that's really dirty and really uh, creates inflammation in your system. It turns out the, with the publication a few days ago, if you have that kind of dirty, animal-driven um, 
the microbiome, then you actually get much more of the cytokine storm because of the existing inflammation. And it's the microbiome that's driving the death of COVID patients. That was kind of shocking, but not surprising because it certainly goes along. Uh, and I, I, I might as well say it's not just COVID illness, it's the vaccine. So I, I have a lot of plant-based friends and about half my family's plant-based and the other half is not. Those of us who are plant-based got the vaccine, number one and number two, no symptoms whatsoever. Uh, and, and the ones who were not plant-based, they got really, really ill. And uh, it only lasted for a day or so. Uh, well worth it to have protection, no question, but, um, but it wasn't comfortable uh, for, for that day. And so the amount of inflammation that you get with either the illness or the vaccine is going to be related to your microbiome, interestingly enough. And I hope uh, people will look at that data, uh, evaluate it carefully, and evaluate your food choices as if you really need to improve the inside, not just the outside. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so I'm telling everybody, just have the guts to go vegan, pun intended. That, that is very interesting about the reaction to the COVID vaccine and something that I don't think a lot of people have thought about. Um, wow, that kind of blows me away uh, a little bit. Um, housekeeping note, uh, you said uh, right after I asked you that last question, you kind of began uh, everything that you said by saying that keto is good for cardiology. I don't want anybody to isolate that clip, you know, and, and just feel like, well, he's endorsing the diet. So what you what you meant by that was it's good for the business Revenue. side. Yes, there we go. Okay. Just right. housekeeping. Wanted to make sure that we got that out of the right. way and completely clear. Um, they should have like, had a wry smile and tongue in cheek and everything. Obviously, I, you know, I, Rush Cardiology wants nothing but the best health for everyone in Chicago and everywhere. Um, and so if, if people will be healthy and, and avoid us, good for them. Man, yeah, because you said that so deadpan. I'm thinking like, <laughs> where is he going with this? This is so not what I was expecting. Um, right. Let's uh, let's kind of conclude things here. Let's uh, wrap things up a little bit uh, by giving some actionable items. So somebody's hearing this right now. They're inspired like, yeah, I want to pump up my heart health. What are some of the foods that you would recommend? Can you give them specific foods, maybe five that you should go to the grocery store this weekend and pick up? I, I would tell everyone who's trying to make a transition, uh, and some people say that behaviorally humans have to sort of make this gradual transition. Well, I kind of like the 180 degree approach and it works for many people, maybe not everyone, uh, but just turn away from the things that you know are bad. That is the refined grains, the sweetened, sugar sweetened beverages, the uh, animal products of really any variety and just see what happens when you uh, go to the grocery store and spend all of your time in the produce section. And, uh, and when you get home, don't fry it. And this is, you know, I, so I would say anything that's green, anything that's, you know, yellow, red, uh, because of COVID, I'm not traveling anymore. I'm giving just as many lectures, but they're in my living room instead of, you know, getting on a plane and going somewhere. So now I'm cooking a lot and it, it really does make a lot, a big difference, a big, better appreciation of everything in that produce aisle. So I, you know, I'd have to, if I had to choose um, some of the things that are my favorites, it's my uh, kale chips and my uh, blackened asparagus and someone will have to send me a, a note to get my recipe for that one. Oh, I will definitely be emailing you for the blackened asparagus. That's a new one. That is fantastic. <laughs> Dr. Kim Williams, it has also been fantastic chatting with you, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We 
we've dropped a link to all of the studies that Dr. Williams and I were discussing in the episode notes. And I want to take a second and just revisit some of the numbers from that really big study on fried food, the one that looked at 500,000 people. Those who ate the most fried food had a 28% greater risk of having a major cardiovascular event. That's more than one out of every four. Then there was a 22% jump in the risk of coronary heart disease. And the biggest one, a 37% increase in the risk of heart failure. That is one out of three, more than one out of three. And then again, you go back to America's infatuation with fried food. Here's really where this gets truly alarming is the fact that one out of every three Americans eats fast food every single day. So how do you get around that? How do you still enjoy fried food without the oil, without the grease? Well, one of the things that you may want to look at is investing in an air fryer. This has really been key for me. I love this thing in my kitchen. And so many people who have reached out say that they absolutely adore theirs as well. I can't tell you how many exam room listeners have sent in recipes that they have made with their air fryer. And if you invest in one of those, if you can, it will go a long, long way for your health. I mean, you can save on a ton of fat and a ton of calories because you can cut out the oil because you're not deep fat frying anything. You're just letting the hot air go to work on cooking your food. It is fantastic. And if you feel like you've raised your nutrition IQ today, you feel like you've learned a little something, please go ahead and subscribe to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify. And as a matter of fact, the show is now available on Pandora as well. And when you go to subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because that helps us to spread the word and helps the next person out getting this life-saving information to those who need it the most. So if you could go ahead and subscribe today, we would greatly appreciate it. And I'll tell you, if you really want to take your health IQ to the next level, I highly recommend joining us in July. This is a big health to do. The International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. This is one of the biggest nutrition conferences of the year. And this year it is online. We are gathering some of the biggest names in health, having them present the latest research to a global audience. And you can be there too. Early registration for ICNM is open right now. And if you register before March 1st, you will have an enormous savings, just $299 for the entire event. And if you are a student, just $175. And for doctors and nurses and dietitians and pharmacists, even health coaches, those who need 
continuing education credits, 20 credits are available. So the conference is coming up July 15th through the 17th online this year. Dr. Neil Barnard will be joining us. And one of the presentations that I'm also really looking forward to, one of the more than 20 speakers who will be there is Tina Choi. And she will be presenting new research on the health risks facing non-vegetarians versus those who eat a plant-based diet. Brand new research on that. That's really what we speak about so much on this show. So to get the latest research from her, I think is going to be absolutely fantastic. And all you need to do to register is head over to pcrm.org ICNM before March 1st to lock in your savings. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Kim Williams for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>